the Sandman, R R R, and Oceans. This is staying in. When Pete's away, the kids will play. Uh, we're going to play a game um, that was sent to us very kindly from Big Potato Games. Thanks very much. So, yeah, so this is Shoot for the Stars, and this is a party game. And the aim of the game is to get closest to a specific number. So I'm going to ask you a question, and that question will have a, a number associated with it, and you've got to try and get closest to that number. But there's a slight twist on how this game works. So what happens is the first person to read out the clue takes a guess at the number and they become the captain of the spaceship. So in the game, you pick up this little meeple and you put it in the sort of the um, cockpit of the spaceship. And then the next person will have a guess and they have to either guess higher than the previous guess. And if they do, they will then become captain of the ship and the other person who was previously captain will then take a seat in the spaceship. So you either guess higher than the number or you say, actually, I think they've done a really good job. They've been a really great captain. I'm just going to sit back in my seat and enjoy this ride. So that's you kind of saying, I think they're either have got the number spot on or they're lower than the number. Or you can be very, very radical and you can basically just jump out of the ship, which is basically you think that the captain's gone bonkers. They've guessed far too high. So I'm just evacuating the ship. And then depending on what happens in terms of the captain's right and where you are in relation to the spaceship, you'll get points awarded for such. So if, if you're the captain, you get it right, you get like a couple of points and everyone who's in the spaceship with you gets like one point. If you're the captain, you get it wrong, you can get deducted points and the people who evacuated the spaceship will get awarded points. But for this game, as we're playing it on the podcast, I just thought we'd have a little bit of fun and just enjoy the game. But there you go. It's a little bit of fun. So here we go. I'm going to ask you a question. And Dan, you can be the first person to uh, try and guess the answer. Then I'll be okay. up to Chris. So here is a question. And I don't know the answers to these either. I, I do like the fact that it comes in this little box, which is really handy, which you can just kind of like, we've taken it on a couple of car journeys when we've been going out as a family. And it's just a nice little box that keeps the answer all hidden up very nicely. So you never get a sneak peek at what's going on. So Dan, what percentage of Brits add milk before water when making a cup of tea? Mm. I'd like to think it's quite low because that's the devil's mm. way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to say 17%. Mm. Now, Chris, are you going to usurp the captain by going for a higher, higher amount? Or are you going to... Do you think that's about right? I'm going to go higher, but not by too much. Okay. I'm going to go to 19%. Now, you see, I think that people just ain't got time. I think people in their mind think, yeah, the right thing to do is add milk after the tea is brewed. But I just think people don't have time. I've seen a lot of people chuck the milk in, chuck the water in, whiz around the tea bag, two squeezes and out. Oh, so I'm going to go sick. 35%. <laughs> Two squeezes and out. So does it come back round again now? Yeah, so it comes back round. So Dan, you can decide whether to carry on going higher or you can abandon ship or you can come along for the ride. Because I'd like it to be nice and low like I originally guessed. But mm. my, 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 my heart says it's low. My brain says no, no. 
chance size is going to be much higher than I want it to be. But do I think it's higher than 35? Because that's probably where I would look. Hmm. I'm going to go a little bit higher. <gasps> and 99. I'm going to go with 38%. Ooh. Chris. I was already in the airlock when Sam said his number, so I'm oh, right. okay, you're you're out. Uh, I think I'm not going to go any. I'm not going to go any higher than thirty-eight. But I'm going to join Dan on the ride here. So let's let's find out what the answer is. So, what percentage of Brits add milk before water when making a cup of tea? Chris, what was your first guess? Nineteen. It was eighteen percent. Oh, oh, it was one off to begin with. Yeah. So, Dan, what's your sixteen to start? I started off with seventeen percent. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Ooh, right, okay. And then I and then I got uh, lured in by your thirty-five percent. So we had a listener contact us at, at Staying in Pod, oh. asking us, mm-hmm. riding the wave of Peter Willington investigates. Yep, and what a yep. wave it is. So uh, a listener, just for the run of it, thank you very much for getting in touch. Good name has asked us what biscuits are we if we were a biscuit so imagine spiritually philosophically just introspect for a moment and imagine if you were in if if the essence of you was encapsulated Mm. in biscuit form what's quite interesting about this question is that we've already done crisps yes and now we're doing biscuits so we're two-thirds of a way to all becoming our own dinners or lunches (laughs) yeah (laughs) yep next time what sandwich are you that feels like oh. something we've already done. <laughs> uh, okay. Now, are we? Uh, now, do we want to do it individually, or are we talking about like a a, a group, a podcast biscuit? Oh, what, individually, what? individually. Okay. Well, it might end up, Dan, that we are like you know one of those big boxes of Fox's biscuits. You know, all the wonderful little biscuits in one big box. Yeah, I mean, for me, those those. Those box of biscuits are always a little bit disappointing. No, no, you yeah, are. Yeah, I like there's there's like the, there's the Viennese sandwich, and then after that, I'm a bit. It, there's too many oaty things and gingerbread. All that stuff is not what I want. I think we found out which biscuit Dan wants to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about what you want to be, <laughs> but it should be. You don't want to be confronted by a biscuit, and you're wondering, do I dunk this in tea or do I put cheese on it? Well, no, I don't think we would ch- we choose ourselves. I don't think that's how this game is played. We, the other the other two choose for you. See, for Chris, I would go for a fruit shortcake. Oh, that's a horrible biscuit. Ooh. Well, you don't. You do not get to choose. Apparently. Okay, explain your, explain your, explain your reasoning. Well, first of all, I love a fruit shortcake. Oh, there you go. What? Well, that's it. Full stop. <laughs> and. <laughs> Sometimes I convince myself that eating fruit shortcakes is a lot more beneficial to me than it would be to eat a chocolate digestive, but they're probably just as bad as each other. But there's something wonderfully, albeit falsely, nutritious about a fruit shortcake. Chewy, a little bit chewy, a little bit sweet, undeniably dunkable. And yeah, just, just different. You don't get many fruit shortcakes. So I'm swaying more like I'm just as you're talking about that. I'm looking at Chris here. I'm looking into your <laughs> eyes and I'm thinking, what biscuit do I see? And I'm coming up. The only one that's straight coming into my brain is we may go with a chocolate variation, but a hobnob. Okay. Well, as you can see by the grey in my hair, I have got a lot of chocolate bloom going on. Mm. 
Indeed. So yeah, so we'll go I'd say I would go for like a chocolate hobnob. I can't explain it to the level that Sam can because it's just a gut feeling. I look at yeah. Chris and I see a chocolate hobnob. Whether it's kind of <laughs> that's kind of uh really dunkable and sturdy and reliable oh. and I don't know. And, and chocolate chocolate hobnobs are my favourite biscuit. They are my wow. favourite biscuit. I think the I think the other one I'd say for Chris, the other one I'd throw out there is a custard cream. Uh, you see, I asked my partner, and she reckons Pete is a custard cream. Ooh. Or a pink wafer for Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like and Pete. And I was like, I was like, I said, yeah, because you like it, but you're not quite sure why. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we've, we've decided on that pink wafer for Pete. There we go. Or um, something like a Viscount. Oh, my. Ooh. Old, going old school for Pete. Gosh, Dan, you've got really good knowledge of biscuits. That's a decadent biscuit. I've, yeah, I've lived. I've lived. Wow. <laughs> right, let's let's do Dan now. Let's come back round to Chris. Dan, mm. Dan, Dan. Um, it's going to be... Dan, you're the tallest. So I'm picturing something that's a kind of a long biscuit. Like a lady's finger? A lady's finger is a nice biscuit. Something sweet, something gentle. All biscuits are sweet. Not all of them. Well, yeah, some of our American listeners, for them a biscuit is something that is, can be a little bit savoury. Yeah, so we're talking cookies. We should have really started with that. I'm thinking like a rich tea finger. Now, rich tea is an undeniably underrated biscuit, but in a pinch, I, I could eat a whole pack of rich teas quite easily. And rich tea fingers, or maybe even, Chris, a chocolate malted milk. Does that exist? Yeah. yeah. Have you never had a malted milk? Chocolate I don't on the bottom. Like malted milks. Oh, don't well, like milk. get out of here, honestly. Jesus. <laughs> This is this was Chris's last ever appearance on this thing. <laughs> I don't even know who you are anymore, Chris. You don't like <laughs> malted milks. A, a malted milk is like the, one of the most comforting of biscuits. Like that there malty. Is, there is a pureness to the flavour of a malted milk. And also, Dan, it's also the most fanciest on the outside because it's always got a little picture of a cow. And most biscuits just have writing on them. They're well boring. But malted milk puts in the effort, and that's what I like. It does. It does. And yeah. <laughs> So I like I like that comforting factor, the fact that it puts in the effort and sometimes it gets even fancier and better with a little bit of chocolate. For you, Sam, mm. I I took the opportunity to message your partner before recording <laughs> asking you. Her. Oh good. Now I'm thinking she's gone straight in with party ring. Do you know no, that's what my partner said about me. Right. She said chocolate she said chocolate hobnob he'd like to think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's nice when someone knows you so well isn't it <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna say one which is in the same area in terms of chocolate biscuits and stuff like that and i'm gonna go and i for the for sam's health reasons i'm gonna go for a fruit variation of this i'm going for right. a fruit club club biscuit oh i actually do think a club's a really good one for you sam actually Clubs, orange club. I'll take an orange club. Continuing my communication with your partner, Sam, mm -hmm. um, they suggested that you'd be a fig roll <laughs> and then said, only kidding. If you're interested, your mother-in-law thinks you'd be a chocolate hobnob with a caramel layer. Oh, that's, that's that is, fancy. Oh, that is, that is lovely. What did Lisa say? Uh, she didn't actually respond, actually, anything else. Oh, right. She just left me with fig roll. Um, <laughs> so somewhere between those two. Somewhere between a fig roll and a chocolate hobnob. But I'll take a chocolate digestive with a caramel layer. I think that I think that does me well. So now it just comes all back round to you, Chris. 
Dan, here we go. Here we go. I want you to pitch this scene, right? You're at university. University. Yeah. Year, year, yeah. Let's say you're halfway through your second year. You're studying with Chris. Yeah. And Chris calls yeah. you in for a meeting. And he calls yeah. you into the grandest library at the university where he teaches. It's mahogany everywhere. You can't believe the wood. Books lined up from floor to ceiling. You walk in and you see Chris. There he is. There he is in his um, like um, a vermilion velvet jacket with little leather patches on the elbows. He's sitting there. He's reading a book. He's got a cup of tea steaming away on the table there. And you just see him dunking a biscuit in that tea. And he looks up and he goes, hello, Daniel. Care for a biscuit? What's he handing you? You know what? You painted such a vivid picture for me <laughs> that I do have an image of a biscuit. And it's not a biscuit that we've discussed. It's close. It's close to a hobnob. He's handing me like an oaty cookie. Mm. It's the one that you don't, you buy them in like a pack of six or something. You don't buy like a big bag pack of yeah. them. They're like, they're like your, your premium biscuits of the shop. Yes. It's like a, I'm not sure if there's fruit in it, but maybe there's like, flecks of white chocolate OT cookies kind of Oof. thing that's yes and it's salt on the senses yeah like an uh, oat biscuit is boring but these are OT cookies these are these are sweet yeah. but the core of them are that kind of flakiness of, of the oats um, so Chris Darby how old did the oldest human live to now I just finished a book by Bill Bryson, which I and I think I know the exact answer for this. <laughs> Called the oldest person. <laughs> it's one page. Just a picture of the date of birth. <laughs> I'm gonna go with a hundred and twenty-two. I agree. That's what I think it is. That's what I know it to be. Then I will sit around for the ride. <laughs> so the answer is 122. Well done, Chris. So, Sam. Hello, Chris. Um, in the last episode. Yes. You stated mm -hmm. publicly that you had seen the film of the year. Yes. Well, what I thought was the film of the year. What you thought was the film of At the year. At that time. <laughs> I also said in that same podcast about how I'm generally known to make really grand, uh, grandiose statements prematurely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but go and on. Nobody picked you up on it. Um, no. I, I, to, to quote you, I think I have seen the film of the year. <laughs> and, Thanks. And I, I'm just going to read to you, Dan, because Sam's seen this film because basically I got one hour into this film and I said... I can't watch this on my own. I need someone to watch this with me. I'm going to wait for Sam. Cause I said, Sam, look, we, you need to come around and see this film. Yes, I know it's three hours, but we need to see it. Dan, I'm just going to read to you the disclaimer that's at the beginning okay. of this film. Always a good sign. Uh, disclaimer. <laughs> no animals or birds were harmed during the making of the film. Horses, oxen, birds, tigers, wolves, bears, leopards, deer, fish and snakes shown in the movie are all computer generated. No, in, 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 no, in no film in, that I've ever seen has my interest been piqued so much as just by a disclaimer where I'm just like, <laughs> sorry, what? 
Oh. All I'm going to do, Dan, is I'm just going to just begin by just describing the reactions that Sam and I had watching this film. Okay. The last time we had anything like this was probably watching John Wick Parabellum, where we just turn yeah. and look at each other going, oh my word, what is happening on screen? Where you, it's, it's that kind of laughter where you're not, you're not laughing at necessarily someone's misfortune. You're not laughing at a joke. You're laughing because you don't know what other else reaction to have mm -hmm. from the situation because what you're seeing is just something you you've never really thought about happening on a screen before the film i'm talking about is rrr or triple r that came out this year it you probably heard it it's kind of doing gangbusters it comes from dvv entertainment um it's i mean how do you categorize this film? i don't think you can it is no I've, I've tried to do it okay dan go on yes i'm gonna <laughs> take a breath it's an indian action musical historical epic romance so that's a lot of genres it's spanning there. I'm trying to think if there are any genres that aren't included in that. Uh, it's an example of Telugu cinema. So uh, Tollywood is the kind of portmanteau of that, really, which is it's a, Telugu is a language that is spoken in certain regions of India. And it's an incredibly popular uh, genre of cinema. And I must confess to my ignorance, I'd never seen a Tollywood film before um, seeing this one. And it is, it's directed by S.S. Rajamouli, who's directed a few uh, Tollywood films previously that are now on my to-watch list on Netflix. So Triple RRR is on Netflix, and it's set in India during 1920. So in 1920, during the, that awful time of the British Raj, and it tells the story of a chance meeting of two incredible human beings, superhumans yes. pretty much, who strike up, I would say probably one of the best bromances I've seen on cinema since Nicholas Angel and Danny Butterman from Hot Fuzz. <laughs> I literally said to Sam before we started, I said, Sam, before we press play on this, this is the kind of friendship I think you and I need to move on to is the next mm. stage of our it's, bromance. It's set a very high bar. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I, like all of you on this podcast, I love you all to pieces, genuinely. I think, you know, I think one of the highlights for me in this podcast is just this friendship we've got. But this, this is on another level. Dan. But this, yeah. but it pales in comparison. Oh yeah, um, and I, I say that just to highlight how epic this is. So one of these people is um, a gentleman called Comarine Beam, and who is on a rescue mission to return a, ki a child kidnapped by a British governor, um, trying to return her to her family. And the other is Rama Raju, um, who is an officer in the Indian Imperial Police who is an intent on rising up the ranks. They're, they're on both sides of the fence here, pretty much. Um, and he's trying to become a, a, what's called a special officer for the British. Now, neither man knows of the other's mission. And the question is really whether their friendship can survive that the truth coming out, mm -hmm. essentially. It's very Shakespearean. Both, it, is ve it is. Shakespeare is a really good descriptor, Sam. It is really, really Shakespearean, all of this, really, in the sense of its lack of subtlety throughout, like nothing is wasted in this what you have is this incredible kaleidoscope of action this vibrant kind of piece of cinematography here i was listening to a direct an interview with the director this morning where he was saying like okay like imagine like you've been asked to kind of direct a scene where a person finds out some bad news he said if that's if that scene was given to me i said right okay i want him to get the bad news while he's running <laughs> okay and the moment he gets that bad news a bomb goes off 
Okay. <laughs> that, in a nutshell, is how this director approaches direction. He, he, sa- he talks about how he likes to direct almost as if he's got magnifying glasses on. Like, mm. nothing is wasted. Everything has intention. And he's a perfectionist, Dan. Every shot is perfect. So imagine you walking through life, a bit like that moment in Bill Murray, Groundhog Day, where he knows everything that's going to happen. Everything just works. Mm -hmm. Everything looks good as you're doing it. Everything just works. You're having the luckiest, best day of your life. That's what this is. And the stunts, the set pieces are incredible. I had to keep picking my jaw up off the ground as Sam and I would turn to each other and just laugh because the movie just doesn't stop. The three hours just fly by and it is just a wonderful, giddy, wild ride where, you know, some of these stunts I could see potentially happening in action films, but what actually drives them all is just the sheer honesty and emotion of the characters, particularly the the, the two characters of Rama Batrao Jr. as Beam and Ram Charan, who genuinely... No word of a lie. He's one of the most handsome men I've ever seen. I know we spoke about Jack Reacher. Oh, but, uh, some, uh, but, uh, but yeah, literally Sam, Sam turned to me at one point and he said, there aren't that many men that make you tingle, Chris. And he's absolutely <laughs> right. It's like that's genuinely, quite the, uh, genuinely he is, he is, statement. he is genuinely, objectively, he is one I, of the most extraordinary looking human beings. Danny can do anything. He can sing, he can dance, um, he can act. And he's he's just got that sensitivity that's paired with that strength. Oh, my word. And, you know, these two men are phenomenal. And they're based on, to a degree, real-life freedom fighters, you know, rising up against the British. Um, and they never actually met in real life. And this is kind of a fictitious account of what would happen if they met. And they were incredibly <laughs> super-powered. I mean, I don't uh, really want to talk about scenes or set pieces because no. I just needed I need you to see it. I, yeah. I want to spend the rest of my life trying to find as many people as I can to sit with them and watch this film. I've watched yeah. it three times already. So I've already devoted nine hours of my life to this, Dan. You mentioned at the start, you described <laughs> it as basically every genre under the sun. And I have no yes. doubt yeah. that that is true. But mm-hmm. if, you, if, if you were to look at it objectively, what's the, what's the driving genre? Is it, is it an action film? I'm not, I, I say, I'm not suggesting that it is just this. Because I'm, no. I'm accepting that there is all these different genres in there, but there would be surely there is one that kind of is the through line that everything then sits upon. I would genuinely go romance. Okay, like yeah, the the love that these two characters and these two actors manage to exude from the screen for each other and for what's going on is just the absolute like. The spectacle and the action reaches such heights of ridiculousness and complete, like, audaciousness that any other relationship just wouldn't have worked if it wasn't as genuine as it feels between these these two characters. And you genuinely feel the love that they have for each other and how that that sort of, like, a fraternal bond exists between the two of them. And it's just, like, it is just the main driver of this film like there's scenes of them there's like a whole like probably 20 minute sequence of them just hanging out and having fun (laughs) and and like a little montage you're just like these two people are the most like adorable genuine like it like and 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 this film just has like no shame and i think it maybe it's a very western thing it has just no shame about 
the like i feel like many parts of our culture does in terms of the the bond that two men that can have together and how sometimes that is a really a really powerful and unique thing and i think that that was the the, the thing that really struck me about this film was and it, and it, and it starts from from the moment that it, that it begins really like the character of beam you're introduced to when he takes down a tiger single-handedly and the amount of <laughs> gratuitous shots that you get of his body is incredible to the point where it's i've never seen a film that celebrates like the male body in this kind of way and it's not and it's and it's and it's i know it sounds weird what i'm describing but it kind of sums up how how the film kind of operates in this way where it's just kind of it, it it's not gratuitous it's not sexualized it's just like trying to get across that this guy is just like the pinnacle of of like <laughs> of like man and just like he's just powerful and he has it all in his in his arms and in his chest and his abs and everything and he's just like oh yes just give me a cuddle come on beam and like the and it's just like these two men have this vast like physical presence and this exude charisma and personality but really it's the it's the romance between the two and it's and it's what they share and this journey that they go on as we said like it's very shakespearean there's people double crossing things people going for the same aims but they don't talk about it so there's miscommunication and then they end up fighting and going off in separate directions and they have to like go on a journey to come back together it has all those strands and different threads but it's just magical it is incredible what a film okay so what i quite like about this game is that there are um a couple of like unusual ones so most of them are like numbers but then sometimes like this one you pull out a little QR code, which is quite interesting. And it asks a question. What is the IMDB rating for The Sound of Music? So it has a little QR code in it because it's a thing that might change. Yeah, so what's the IMDB rating for The Sound of Music, Dan? I think it's, I think it's way up there. I think it's one of the highest rated on IMDB. Okay. So I am going to go... IMDB do it, do it out of 10, don't they? Yes. I'm going to go for 9... Point six three, mm. Chris. I've never seen the film, so <laughs> classic. I was brought up on it. I'm. I think that's too high. What was it? Nine point eight three. I said nine point six three. Nine point six. I'm. I'm not gonna. I'll, I'll catch the next shuttle. Yeah, you see, I think because because the sound of music's good, but it's three. It's nearly three hours long, Dan. I just, I don't. I was going to go like eight point seven or something like that. I was, I was going eight point one. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm scanning the QR code. Scanning the code. Hang on. Guys. So, what are you doing, Sam? Are you, are you bailing? Yeah, yeah. I'm bailing out. I, okay. I think that's far too high. So, I'm, I'm flying solo. There is a special points awarding if you are flying solo. Um, it's currently at an eight point one. Well, I am very. You, you got you, you jumped out of the plane, Chris. Don't start celebrating. Yeah, no, but I said afterwards. I said afterwards I would have gone for eight point one. That was the result rating I would have given it. Wow, I am stunned. So yeah, so oceans, <laughs> they're pretty cool. Um, but there's also a board <laughs> game that's pretty cool about oceans, 
and Chris and I were lucky enough to play it. Who's this from? Recently, um, this is from North Star Game Studio. It's designed by a whole host of um, people: Nick Bentley, Dominic Krabuchet, uh, Ben Goldman, Brian O'Neill, and with incredible art by uh, Guillaume Ducos and Catherine Hamilton. Um, I must say this was kindly sent to us by Cold Spring uh, Games, so thank you very much. And if you've walked into a board game shop recently, you might have seen like Oceans or even, I think it's part of like the Evolutionary Evolution series. Yeah, I think it's the same art, isn't it? Yes. And it's a series of games that feels slightly educational in a way. And that's not to sort of damn it with faint praise or to to say it's you know simple or or whatever or or inversely trying to hit you over the head with you know science all the time but it it plays in a way which i for one found really interesting in terms of how it uses the science of evolution in order to create some of its gameplay does that make sense chris yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's a kind of a definite kind of process that you have to try and tap into to make the most yeah. out of it as a player. Mm-hmm. So how the game works is, is first of all, you open up this box and it's a wealth of um, cardboard, cardboard, little cardboard fishies, little cardboard boxes that you have to make. These colourful reefs uh, full of uh, coral that you have to build when you first start playing the game and these little cardboard cards that you have to put in certain slots and tons and tons of playing cards full of loads and loads of different fish that you have to sort of sort out when you first play the game little cardboard screens and bonus tokens like it's a wealth of stuff when you open the box but the core of the experience is really what you're doing is you're building your own little realm of the ocean you're building different species of fish to inhabit that realm so and and it feels quite weird to describe it as a game because it feels like you're slightly playing god in a way but really what you're doing is trying to combine the best elements of different fish in order to create a certain species that will score you points because it's a board game and everything comes down to bloody scoring points but anyway so what I mean what I mean by that is is that on your go you might put down a card that say has the trait that they're uh, an apex that they're an apex predator and that means every time that you play that you go feeding with that fish they're going to you know grab a certain amount of food or they are going to attack another player to grab a certain amount of food off them and you could create a fish that has two of these apex predator cards on them making them really vicious making them like the apex of apex predators you could create a species of fish that has the inking ability from a squid and the filter feeder ability from a whale for example and so the filter feeder manages to feed like an awful lot they get so much food into their mouth but the inking ability of their species means that they're well shielded from the attacks of those apex predators that i previously mentioned and that is really the core of the game in like the simplest of terms 
is that you're making these unique species of fish in order to basically create your own little ecosystem, an ecosystem that has predators that can attack other players le left left to you and to the right of you and you create other fish that can hide in the ink that they create and you can get other fish and animals that uh, exist a bit like you know is it a mora fish that like feed off the back of little like off the food that the other fish are getting for you so they kind of like they're scavengers they don't need feeding directly but they'll feed off the food that each of your other fish are getting each turn and it's a very adept way of i found anyway of a game trying to teach you about ecosystems and about symbiotic living and about you know the traits that certain animals sort of specialize in in order to just survive like it's if you have a animal that's like a filter feeder and an apex predator and has lots of different traits they might not do as well in your little ecosystem as a couple that really sort of min max one specific trait so it teaches you about that sort of evolutionary diversity all within this like board game of which essentially is just an engine builder that's what you're doing is trying to build the most efficient way of getting food into your ecosystem without your animals dying off and it was just a a, a wonderfully unique sort of like educational light experience i don't know if that's the best way to put it chris yeah i think it's quite interesting because i think you made a comment which i thought was very astute when we were playing it was that actually it feels like quite an abstract game at least for a first yeah. playthrough and it's interesting that often in a lot of board games what helps me make the decisions i make when i'm playing is thinking about the theme and thinking well logically this is what mm. i would do this game oceans is a complete inversion of that actually whereas often i was looking at the kind of the stats okay if i put this card here to the right of this that means i activate this particular power here almost in the same when i play um, wingspan for example where a lot of that game likewise is about not just the cards themselves but their juxtaposition with in relation to other cards yeah. i think if i played more of oceans what would happen would be that i'd start to understand and i'd actually find the game teaching me more as you say about some of the kind of marine biology and how these different life forms or these different um, marine life kind of function really and how nature finds a way really to be um, at that kind of evolutionary pinnacle really in order to survive I've just been looking at some some pictures of this because so I've I've not played this. Uh, I mean, firstly, like it's beautifully colourful and kind of a lot of. Yeah. I, I think it, more so than a lot of other games, a lot of boggins can fall into more your reds and browns and greens and stuff. Where this is the vibrant colours in this are, really do stand out. But what I also can see from that, that there's lots of small pieces and lots of different cards and lots of things to pay attention to. And as someone kind of unlike you guys, I don't play as many games as you do. I don't play board games just as much. I don't I don't have opportunities to do that. And so as someone who has a limited kind of access to games, when I do play them, often like that first impression can be quite daunting. Like certain games, obviously it helps when you've got kind of people like you who are there who can walk me through it and stuff like that. But 
the nature of certain games with lots of pieces and lots of components is quite daunting. Looking at this, mm -hmm. there are lots of pieces. There are lots of different elements to it. How does the game kind of help you through that? Like, for at least, especially like for first-time players and stuff. Like, what is the that kind of starting process to kind of help you along? To answer your question, Dan, uh, I think that even though there's lots of little pieces, it's mainly just little fish, uh, which are lots of pieces, which is just how the game scores. So at the end of the game, depending on how much fish your species, your collective species have taken in as a population, determines how successful they are. So there's different things like you can essentially overpopulate a certain species. So they will then die out if you overpopulate them because there's not enough food to, to feed them. And then there's other things like um, your fish like age over time. So if you're not diversifying or not sustaining different ecosystems, you lose fish depending on like the age of that particular species that you have. So the, so the amount of bits basically is just mainly just the fish and then it's just all basically card driven. But I agree with you in terms of how overwhelming this game I think appears on from the outset and when i was first starting um, to learn the rules and um, first introducing to chris that was one of the, the struggles that i had was that some of the language that it uses in the rule book i think makes it sound a lot more complicated than it actually is when you get to start playing it it's like you're doing things like um, evolving and playing traits on species and migrating and foraging and aging and you have to deal with things like well has the cambrian explosion happened or if it hasn't happened then you're going to do this and you have to deal with what's adjacent to what and there's lots of different arrows and all this kind of stuff but to go back to what chris was saying once you tap into the theme of it and once you tap into the ecology of the game that you're playing that complexity starts to sort of like ebb away a little bit because the turns are essentially become a lot more simplified in terms of, well, of course, like I'm going to spend this start of my turn changing a trait or starting a new species and then the species is going to feed, which means that you just follow the reactions on the cards and then the species is going to age. So that means either they're going to die off or just some of their population is going to go down. And then you're going to go on to the next player. Will then play their will then will then play their game, and you start to react to this game as if it is like this evolutionary process that you are that you're going to each turn. You're essentially moving through a different age in the evolutionary process until it gets to the point where the you could almost say it's like a thousand years between each turn, like every thousand years a new species comes on or a species makes a certain evolutionary development. And then the game slightly starts to become a bit a bit remarkable in a way. When you, when you start to think about it in those, in those terms, it doesn't become abstract anymore. It's not just a plain engine builder. You feel like you are creating your own little ecology, which I think is what makes it um, such a special special experience now if if we get this right if any of us gets this right i'll be very very surprised so the second trick that um shoot for the stars balls and i think this is the one where one of the last times i played it we had the most fun is when you pull a card 
and there's no answer on it at all because it'd be something that relates to the people that are playing the game. So here we go. How many broken bones have you all had in total? So we've played this when it's asked stuff like how many cups of tea have you all drank um, today? But yeah, but this one is how many broken bones do you think we've all had in total? Obviously, you know your own and the rest is just... So I'm thinking... Sam, how many broken bones have you had? (laughs) I'm going to go... I'm going to go one. I'm going to go two. (laughs) (laughs) Now that tells me a lot. (laughs) Either Dan's broken two bones or he thinks... (laughs) Or he's at least broken one. I think that Chris is quite energetic. I think uh, the, I think the tea question was a lot harder, Sam, when we did that. Yeah, like, it was. Generally, we spent about five minutes down mulling that over, doing this. Well, hang on, you usually have this, you have this, <laughs> then you have this. Um, my gut generally was to say something like two, but... You can just go along with the ride with Dan if you want. No, I'm going to say one, so I'm not going to go along. I can't remember it being ever brought up in conversation, but... I. I feel like Chris, you've oh, have you. Once, it, if it comes back to me again, can I bail at any point? If you're, if you're the captain, it's only if you are not the captain you can decide whether you're bailing or okay. you're jumping out. So if it comes back to you without me making another high bid, then you're you're stuck <laughs> on your two. I I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's three. So I'm going to stick with I'm going to stay in with Dan. So there's no big reveal. I've never broken a bone. Chris, have you broken a bone? No. Neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an anticlimax. Oh, God. I, I just look at Chris and I think he's so energetic. He runs, he climbs, does all that stuff. He must, he must have broken a bone. If the question was how many ligaments have you torn, oh, I've been double figures, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I could have sworn apparently Chris I, broke his collarbone. No, no. Apparently, I've got quite strong bones. My doctor told me, but <laughs> very weak li- ligaments and muscles. <laughs> Chris, Chris is Wolverine. <laughs> so, yeah. Can you imagine if I put if I was put through Weapon X? That'd be a really shoddy investment. <laughs> Just a tired, wheezy, <laughs> <laughs> but really strong sighted so like is is the sandman something i should be adding to my list of stuff it's there at the moment because kind of the components are all very good from what i can see mm-hmm. like neil gaiman tick kind of cast tick kind of yeah. story kind of visuals tick so it's all there but obviously how much of that actually kind of comes through um it's well i i think it comes through in spades personally um this is a very old graphic novel. Neil Gaiman has batted off numerous attempts over the decades to try and get this story adapted as a yeah. film. From the, from the moment this came out as a graphic novel, as a comic book series, which is over 30 years ago now, it has been in development to be made into a, into a film. But the issue is, at its core, The Sandman is an anthology story where you'll get some stories where the the Sandman hardly appears. He's almost a catalyst slash kind of storyteller, really, really, who kind of is a bit of a lone wanderer. And you just see the world through their eyes, essentially. 
which doesn't necessarily work that well as a film, really. But for something no. long form like television, it's great because you could bring in, say, a different director for each episode, a different writer, say, for example. Yeah. And every episode can have a slightly different flavor to it. Yeah. So they so they've done things like there's one of the episodes which is fully animated there's another episode which kind of sits as like a an anthology um story to the wider sort of through line of 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 what's going on which is kind of true to how um game and first envisages this work like there's a really interesting article on the bbc culture website about sort of the history of what it's taken to get the sandman onto the screen which is you know exceptional in terms of you know how bonkers basically um this <laughs> sort of particular uh creative work has has been through in terms of people just trying to push it out and rush it out and you know if anyone's heard the incredible story from um Kevin Smith regarding is it John Peters John Peters and the infamous producer the infamous producer basically um there's this wonderful story that Kevin Smith tells about how John Peters was developing, or he asked Kevin Smith to develop a, is it a Superman story? Or yeah, it was, a, it was for the Nick Cage Superman. Nick Cage Superman write a script for it, and basically John Peters hijacked it and stole the story, and then essentially tried to um, develop that story into tons and tons of different films, one of which was The Sandman, and Neil Gaiman stopped it happening from leaking the script, and everyone was just like, oh, that's terrible. And in the end, this script went on to make the wonderful film that was Wild Wild West. So that could have been sandman anyway so it's it's like the the times that sandman has come close to being turned into something has been you know those those sort of like early 90s sort of rush for comic books and ip then it was like the the establishment of like the the popularity i should say of like the harry potter franchise and lord of the rings and then it's only been really with this new sort of quote-unquote golden age of television that it's really found a voice and a home of its own. And now, as someone who has read some of the comic books, I think this adaptation is good. I think that this adaptation is very good. I don't think it's as good, weirdly, as the recent Audible series that was released a couple of years ago that I think now is in its second season. So that had James McAvoy playing uh, Morpheus, Prince of Dreams. And uh, it was adapted by Dirk Maggs, who is an incredible, incredible adaptation writer of actually lots of Neil Gaiman's work. I think he may have adapted Neverwhere. Let me check. I think they did. Did they do um, Good Omens as well? I could be wrong. Yeah, Dirk Mags did um, did Good Omens, and Which he's also he's the person who I think uh, also adapted Nightfall for Radio Drama as well. He he is incredibly good, especially getting Gaiman's Gaiman's voice into an auditory sphere. And I, another reason I say weirdly is that the Sandman is such a visual treat. Like, you are playing with a character who is the Lord of Dreams. He is in charge of conquering up any image imaginable, which is always what I love about Gaiman's ambition, and especially the artists involved with Sandman, is that if you were going to make your life easy as an artist, you wouldn't be playing with a character who could literally conjure up anything. 
and is in charge of you know i think a lesser writer would just be oh they'd just be death or something simple in charge of a very binary process where there is gaiman's gone set himself a full-on challenge in terms of tackling a, a character who is in charge of any imaginable situation plane of existence and anything like that there is no limit to what he could conjure up or be involved with day in day out and you would assume just like comic books that a visual medium works best for that kind of thing in terms of imagining the realm that they exist in and they play with and there there are a lot of really nice images in this series but there's just something about the audio adaptation of this series which is just jaw-dropping it was incredible and maybe it's because your mind is doing most of the work in terms of imagining what these landscapes and what these um, sort of situations look like that makes it so appealing rather than just being fed to you like it does in the the Netflix and and to some degree in the the comics, but to a lesser degree where it's a bit more abstractly um, presented. But I think the adaptation for people not familiar with the work is pretty damn great. Do you think there's an element of, I think similar to kind of people's viewpoint on like Alan Moore's Watchmen, like that this mm. like this is an unfilmable um for different reasons, not the same reasons as it would have been for Watchmen, for perhaps the the kind of the visual eloquence, for want of a better phrase, of the Sandman. You're saying works better is working better in that audio adaptation because it's it's your imagination. Your imagination can pluck can create things far more creative than something that you're going to see on screen because you're there is infinite amount of options in your own imagination that you are going to create rather than just something that's been shown to you do you think that's perhaps why based on the subject matter that there is something lacking and i as i i I take from what you're saying that this is not you're not being critical of it you're just saying that there is not something there is something one works better than the other yeah yeah exactly you're not saying that it's a bad adaptation or it's a bad show and i shouldn't watch it but i'm just thinking is that perhaps one of the reasons why it's not kind of a must watch for you kind of like like rrr is for for chris oh um I, I think it's definitely a must watch especially if you've had no dealings with the character before because despite what you think about how it looks and how it presents certain parts of the book if you've not encountered the character's like John D and Morpheus and you, I mean you mentioned Constantine earlier on but Constantine is in this oh, um, really? yes even though they couldn't get the rights so they gender swapped it which actually made them a much more interesting character by my is, by that, my is that character from from the Sandman trilogy because I know of like yes the, the comic yeah, and I yeah. know obviously they made films and they've like the character has been in I can't remember which TV show DC Le- Le- Legends of Tomorrow. Was, yeah, I think he might have shown up in Arrow or Flash or something as well. Yeah, it yeah. used to have its own yeah. series with them that got cancelled, and it kind of the character limped on in other IP. Const- he's such a he's such a good character. I it's mean, an amazing li- character. Yeah, the um, Hell Hellblazer. That's it. Yeah. a graphic novel. Um, is a stunning piece of work. But but I guess what I'm saying, Dan, is is that the characters are strong enough and so well imagined that in both the audio and the and the and the tv series that it's just worth it for for them and to experience 
what a wonderfully tightly woven narrative this is that Gaiman's put together. I should say as well that Tom Sturridge is incredible as Dream. Oh, Not only in so terms good. of how he looks, but his voice is just so sultry at times, kind of seductive, um, which is you kind of expect the Sandman to have, just kind of whispering mm. these things into your ears and making you see things. And it has this really interesting premise, Dan, where the Lord of Dreams, who exists in a world where there is an anthropomorphized version of various different qualities. So, for example, Dream has a sister who's deaf, and there's an incredible episode, well, sorry, there's an incredible story in the graphic novel series that's also to, adapted where you spend an episode with deaf seeing, you know, the world from their perspective. And a cult um, centuries ago sought to trap deaf, but they accidentally caught the Sandman. And so what happens is they keep Dream imprisoned. They take his kind of sacred artifacts, and it's like a century or so later that he finally escapes and it's like he comes to terms of a world that has had to live without dreams or in some case they've not some people have just never woken up and he has to kind of go on a, a journey to kind of find his missing artifacts but it's actually to learn about, what that does in inadvertently is you're as he's playing catch up with the world you're actually learning a bit more about dream mm -hmm. and the world that he was a part of or is a part of and watching him kind of question why does he do what he does and is he important really and while this is all going on you just get these little glimpses of those that are on the cusp or tangentially linked to him so you travel through quite a lot of places um, we go to hell for example um, we see lucifer morningstar um, as i said before we spend some time with death there's one episode which is probably one of the most incredible um stories in the graphic novel which takes place entirely within a 24-hour diner um mm. which is just extraordinary and like what i love about what gaiman does so beautifully is that despite this kind of lofty kind of ambitious world building that's going on there there's something really strangely kind of always familiar about um the wants the desires of the characters irrespective of who they are whether they're the Lord of Dreams or they're deaf, there's something strangely relatable to these kinds of existential questions they ask. And, and I think that's something that Gaiman does really, really well. And I think that's part of the allure of Gaiman in the same way that Pratchett does as well. You know, yeah. Pratchett creates this entire world, but at the same time, there's something about it that feels quite quintessentially familiar to us. And again, that's another great radio adaptation as well, the Pratchett stuff. It is. The Sandman has always read to me and always comes across to me as Gaiman's thesis almost on on dreams and how dreams are treated badly and tr dreams are underrated and ignored and how actually when you harness them, how powerful they are. And when they go missing, that's actually more dangerous to the world and to mankind than um, any other uh, sort of unobservable threat and the damage that it does to the world and the, and the things that Dream consequently has to try and put right because, because his, his presence and his control over the Dreaming had uh, been absent for so long, how actually that is of a of a of a massive consequence for for us and it and it's such and it's just that wonderful outlook that Neil Gaiman has that 
he, he, he doesn't necessarily take this stance that you have to live in a dream world. He doesn't take this stance that you have to live in this fan- fantastical place or that your existence is without meaning or, or, or anything like that. Like you don't have to take anything so seriously so you can just skip through life pretending that nothing really matters. What he's really trying to get across with the Sandman is how powerful your dreams are and, they, and, they're, and they're, they're as much a part of you as anything that you do in your waking life and in this sort of culture that we kind of exist in at the moment where it's kind of like sleep is very much like a commodity like it has to be a certain amount of time it has to be a certain amount of quality and you're only doing it right quote unquote if like you're getting you're pulling in certain numbers and you're getting like 80 on your Fitbit stats however what Gaiman is sort of postulating with which goes throughout all of the Sandman series is how important actually sleep is for your for your for yourself and for your your being and for your hopes and for your dreams and for your loves and for your ambitions and how it feeds into every single part of you and how there's a wonderful bit in the series and the novel where it talks about nightmares and you know saying that nightmares aren't there to scare you they're there to get the best out of you they're there to inspire you to 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 make you ambitious and make you reach for something and make you realize something that you didn't think that you could do and I just always have the greatest admiration for writers who can take something that is undeserved, underserved, that people aren't talking about and, and put it at the forefront of a, of a conversation. So, yeah, so maybe watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the some of the most popular podcasts in the world, right, have sign-offs. So it got me thinking. Should we have a sign-off? Oh. And if we do, what should it be? I mean, this is quite an important thing to just spring on us, I'm not going to lie. Well, I feel like we work best in the moment. Come on, without come on. Pete. Synapse is firing. Yeah, we work without best Pete. without Pete. Um... <laughs> <laughs> We're at our best without Pete. Um, that's it. Well done. Thanks for enjoying <laughs> the staying in. That's our sign-off. We work best without Pete. That's our Pete. sign-off. Goodbye. We're at our best without Pete. We peak without Pete. There we go. At our peak without Pete. Yeah. Cups of tea have never been sweeter. That's, have Stay. a dunk on us. Have a dunk on us. <laughs> Put a dunk on it. Put a dunk on it. There we go. Put a dunk in. No. Slam, a slam dunk. No. Or um, crumbly goodness. <laughs> Oh, crumbs. It's oh. a staying in podcast. Look at that. Do you want to go like a pun or do you want to just like be cheesy or I don't, I don't know where, what angle you want us to look at? Mm, I think whatever, whatever suits, whatever suits us best. I mean, me, it'll be a pun all the way because that's kind of 90% of my humour <laughs> is pun based. And diction. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's what I would go preference, but I, I feel like many of the most famous sign-offs are just sort of strange sayings, like "Don't trill a hole in your head," "Kiss your dad square on the lips." I mean, do 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 you want it? Should sh- should it be relevant to the show? Do we something on the lines of like "Thanks for staying in." Now go outside, just like get aggressive Ooh. with it. Ooh, thanks, thanks. Thanks for staying in with us. Or 
this was staying in because the outside is pretty awful. (laughs) (laughs) We've been staying in, so you don't have to. Yeah, something like that. Oh, no, because... No, we want people to stay in. (laughs) Oh, no, this is a lot more difficult. But that's the thing. They have been been staying in. But you also... Not necessarily. We're we're helping them, though, because we don't want them to stay in all the time because it's good to get outside and get some fresh air. And so do you want to be nice about it or do you want to be aggressive with it and, like, get outside now? No, it can't be nice. I I feel like aggression is not really our... is our forte here. Well, if you would like to suggest... A, yes. uh, a a strap line for the staying in podcast. I I feel like we just hit our zenith at we peaked we peak without Pete, but if you could if you can do better, uh, we're sanguine without Sam. <laughs> uh, then send us an email stayinginpod at gmail dot com. That's also where you can send in your questions that you'd love Pete to investigate um, on your behalf. Um, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Staying In Pod. But yeah, but but thanks so much for Big Potato for sending me shoot for the stars, and also thanks to Cold Spring for sending us oceans. One final one to go out for: uh, How fast is the world's fastest roller coaster in miles per hour, Dan? Uh, Fifty-eight miles an hour. Chris, uh, I'm going to go for sixty-two. I feel like this is going to go into something absurd like the 100, so I'm going to go 102, 102 miles per hour. But is it is it like the, the, the top speed at, at a roller coaster? Because like, yeah. if you go on, if I go on like Oblivion at Alton Towers, like the, the creep up to the top is very slow. The drop down yeah. into the hole is very, very fast. I think, so I, is it the average? I think it's... No, it's at its maximum. How fast is the world's? Okay, so if it's if we're looking at its maximum, so I've said one hundred and two, hundred and two, triple figures. Okay. All right then. No, you know what? No, I'm 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 going to bail. I think I think you're too high. I'm going to bail. I think I I'm imagining a car going past me at one hundred two miles an hour. I don't think a roller coaster is going faster than that. So I'm bailing. I've I've jumped out in my space parachute. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we haven't left the atmosphere then. <laughs> yeah, is there much wind resistance in the space? It's a space parachute, <laughs> I said. <laughs> it's carbon fiber. Fair enough. Um, I'm I'm gonna bail as well. I'm afraid, Sam. Okay. So the world, how fast is the world's fastest roller coaster? 149 miles per hour. What? Nah. That, how is that value for money? Like you're on it for like 30 seconds. Having queued for ages. That's just dangerous. <laughs> also, I think during that, Dan said uh, what I think our strap line should be. And this is how I'm going to end the show. So thank you very much for um, joining us for this episode of the Staying In Podcast. All right, then. <laughs>